Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, At Least He Was Honest, The Rich Young Ruler. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 14, 2012. I've always loved The Rich Young Ruler, as a sympathetic anti-hero. He's young, wealthy, powerful, and spiritually earnest. He asks the right questions. But his story comes to a bad end, and so he's not a traditional hero. When he asked what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus shocked him with a challenge he could never have anticipated. Divest yourself of all your wealth, distribute it to the poor, then follow me in my peripatetic ways. That was too much, and so the story concludes, he went away sad. In fact, <clears throat> many wealthy people have answered this call of Jesus. We owe them a tremendous debt of gratitude for their obedience and generosity. They did not flinch or blink. Back in the early 5th century, Melania the Elder is one of my spiritual heroes. Born to an aristocratic family in Spain, at the age of 22 she was widowed, had lost two sons, and was one of the richest women in the Roman Empire. In her early 30s she hired a trustee for her remaining son, then sailed to Alexandria. There she sold her possessions, changed her holdings into gold, and spent six months making the rounds of the desert and seeking out the holy monks in the barren Egyptian desert. She later moved to Palestine. In Jerusalem, she built a monastery and befriended another wealthy aristocrat named Rufinus. And so, in the ancient work, Lausiac History, we read the following. For 27 years, they both entertained with their own private funds the bishops, the solitaries, and virgins who visited them. So much wealth did she spend in holy zeal. No one failed to benefit by her good works. Churches, monasteries, and prisons were her beneficiaries. I've always wondered what happened to the rich young ruler. The early church prized his story so much that it occurs in all three synoptic gospels. Whereas it's easy to take a cheap shot at rich people, Jesus didn't do that. The gospel says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. I think this is because he was straight up honest, honest with himself and with Jesus. He didn't try to have it both ways. There were no rationalizations about special circumstances, no pious excuses, no attempt to negotiate a compromise. He counted the cost, looked at his life, and turned his back on Jesus. He, would marry, he was married to his money. Divorce was impossible. A few weeks ago, I failed a much easier test 
when a beggar asked me for help in the Costco parking lot. I turned him away, and as I did, I felt my heart shrivel just a little. A few days later, I was grateful for a do-over at the farmer's market. I thought a lot about those two experiences in light of this week's gospel. What was going on? Was I really worried about five dollars? Surely there were deeper issues. One thing's for sure, whereas I might have helped the poor with a small handout, the poor definitely helped me with an opportunity to imitate God's generosity. In his new book, What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets, Michael Sandel of Harvard laments how markets and market values have triumphed over all other competing values. In the last 30 years, we've gone from having markets to being a market. Today, you can buy and sell almost anything. Immigrants can buy permanent residence in the United States if they invest $500,000 and create 10 jobs in areas of high unemployment. Lobbyists in Washington, D.C. pay line standards to, to secure seats at congressional hearings. School districts pay children for academic performance. And Project Prevention pays women drug addicts $300 cash if they agree to sterilization or long-term birth control. The results have been devastating. In a society where everything is for sale, life is harder for those of modest means. The more money can buy, the more affluence or the lack of it matters. Sandel gives dozens of examples of how market values dominate our lives. He also explains how we got to this point. Traditional economics ignore or oppose ethical values. Some people argue that unregulated markets are the best means to all public ends. Ayn Rand still commands a wide readership. She famously criticized self-sacrifice for the public good as the greatest sin, and she commended radical individualism and selfishness as the greatest virtues. These trends are aggravated by two factors, says Sandel. The persistent prestige of market thinking, despite the devastation of the 2008 crash, and the rancor and emptiness of our public discourse, along with the moral vacancy of contemporary politics. And so his book tries to reconnect markets and morals. That's one of the challenges I faced in the Costco parking lot. To accept Jesus' challenge to the rich young ruler, to desacralize your money by divestment like Melania the Elder, you face an uphill battle against powerful and prestigious cultural forces. You must swim against the tide, mainly by yourself. If we can't imitate Melania, at least we can follow the rich young ruler and be honest about the struggle. Wendell Berry's poem puts it this way, to be sane in a mad time is bad for the brain, worse for the heart. 
Economic forces and prevailing political winds will always threaten to brainwash us. But they don't fully explain my reaction to the beggar in the parking lot. That would be a convenient excuse. On some deeply personal level, I bear my own responsibilities. But like those large external and institutional forces, the inner recesses of the human heart are complex. Back in the 4th century, John Cassian surveyed many monasteries. One thing that amazed him was how monks who had renounced great wealth could nevertheless fly into a rage over a lost pen or a borrowed book. In his poem, The Dream, Wendell Berry imagines reclaiming nature from industrial humanity. But then he has an epiphany. He writes, I see that my mind is not good enough. I see that I am eager to own the earth and to own men. I find in my mouth a bitter taste of money, a gaping syllable I can neither swallow nor spit out. And in his poem, Voices Late at Night, he utters an ironic prayer. Until I have appeased the itch to be a millionaire, spare us, O Lord, relent and spare. Don't end the world until it has made me rich. Battling the spirit of the age is hard enough. Conquering the depths of desire is harder still. And the invitation of Jesus, let us remember, is given to all of us and not just to rich power brokers. Osceola McCarty, 1908-1999, of Hattiesburg, Mississippi, was one of those rare individuals who subverted social expectations and also disciplined her desires. After dropping out of school in the sixth grade, for the next 78 years, she washed and ironed the dirty laundry of white people. She never left the home where she was raised. She never married, never had any children, and never drove. Her TV got one channel, but that didn't matter because she rarely watched it. Late in life, she bought a window air conditioner, but only used it when guests visited. She always lived alone after her aunt died in 1967. On July 26, 1995, when she was 87, Osceola McCarty gave $150,000 to the University of Southern Mississippi to endow scholarships for black students. Thirty years earlier, USM didn't even admit black students. I would go to school and come home and iron, she said. I'd put the money away and save it. When I got enough, I went to First Mississippi Bank and put it in. The teller told me it would be best to put it in a savings account. I didn't know. I just kept on saving. After her aunt died in 1967, she made a plan to give away her life savings. She contacted an attorney, then went to her bank. An official laid out ten dimes on a table. 
He explained that she could indicate how much she wanted to leave to various people by pay placing the appropriate number of dimes on each of their names that were written on scraps of paper. She gave three dimes to her cousin, one to her Friendship Baptist Church, and six dimes to the University of Southern Mississippi. I live where I want to live, and I live the way I want to live. I couldn't drive a car if I had one. I'm too old to go to college. So I planned to do this. I planned it by myself, she told the New York Times. Osceola McCarty reminds me of Melania the Elder. Both women followed in the footsteps of Peter, who after hearing Jesus' words to the rich young ruler said, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. <clears throat> For books this week, I review Victoria Sweet. The title, God's Hotel, A Doctor, a Hospital, and a Pilgrimage to the Heart of Medicine. New York, Riverhead Books, 2012. The book is 372 pages. When Victoria Sweet first came to Laguna Honda Hospital in San Francisco, a colleague remarked to her, we'll never have it so good. That was counterintuitive wisdom, to say the least. Laguna Honda was an almshouse, by some accounts the last one in the nation. It was the end of the line where the poorest of the poor went for medical care because no, one, no place else would take them. The building itself was an architectural throwback to a bygone era of practicing medicine with a spectacular hilltop view of the ocean, open wards, solariums, a barnyard, greenhouse, and an aviary. The paint was peeling, the plaster cracked, and doctors still use index cards for patient records. As a city-run hospital, Laguna Honda was also subject to all the bureaucracy and idiocy of regulatory agencies not to mention hardball local politics and personalities. Victoria Sweet went to Laguna Honda for two months as a young doctor and has now been there for 20 years. In addition to her medical degree, she also did a PhD in the history of medieval medicine, specifically a study of the 12th century Benedictine nun Hildegard of Bingen who wrote an obscure medical text. For Sweet, Hildegard's pre-modern medicine provides an important corrective to her contemporary model of delivering health care. The latter is mechanistic and sees the human body as a machine. That's good as far as it goes, and Sweet doesn't disparage the many miracles of modern science. But the body is more than a machine. And Hildegard reminds us of the importance of a vitalism that modern medicine banished long ago. 
Laguna Honda, in its unique patient population, taught Sweet many important life lessons. Her memoir includes numerous case studies of her patients, much like the many books of Oliver Sacks. She advocates what she calls slow medicine that's holistic, in contrast to modern health care with its bottom-line focus on efficiency and profit. There are, she says, efficiencies in inefficiency, and vice versa. This is medicine as a spiritual craft to be practiced, and not just a commodity to be sold. In the end, she realizes just how right her colleague was, and so she concludes on the next to the last page, being in that old hospital changed my life. Victoria Sweet, God's Hotel. For movies this week, I review Samsara from the year 2012. According to Wikipedia, in popular use, samsara may refer to the world in the sense of various worldly activities which occupy ordinary human beings, the various sufferings thereof, or the unsettled and agitated mind through which reality is perceived. That's a pretty good description of Ron Fricke's nonverbal documentary film. There's no dialogue, narration, or script only the stunning staccato images of human life on earth with all its blessings and sorrows, tragedy and terror, beauty and goodness, all of which is accompanied by haunting music. Scenes of unadorned natural beauty like starry nights, waterfalls, and desert dunes are interspersed with every manner of human activity like military parades, industrial food production, cosmetic surgery, African village life, an opera, garbage pickers beside bulldozers in third world landfills, and so on. Significant portions of the film are explicitly religious. Monasteries carved into rock cliffs, Orthodox Jews at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, Christian cathedrals and baptisms, the Muslim pilgrimage to the Al-Haram Mosque, and red-robed Buddhist monks making the intricate sand sculpture of the Wheel of Life. Filmed over five years in 25 countries, Samsara is a testament of the power of image to enlighten our human story. And for film this week, we've posted a poem by Brian Wren, Good is the Flesh. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the birthing, the milk and the breast. Good is the feeding, caressing, and rest. Good is the body for knowing the world. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body for knowing the world, sensing the sunlight, the tug of the ground, feeling, perceiving, within and around. Good is the body from cradle to grave. Good is the flesh that the word has become. 
Good is the body from cradle to grave, growing and aging, arousing, impaired, happy in clothing or lovingly bared. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. Good is the flesh that the Word has become. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh, longing in all as in Jesus to dwell, glad of embracing and tasting and smell. Good is the body for good and for God. Good is the flesh that the Word has become. The title of the poem, Good is the Flesh. The author, Brian Wren. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 14th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.